0: episode number 150 of turkey book talk thank you thank you thank you for joining for a century and a half of episodes A lot of hours, a lot of words since we started back in 2015. It's still me, William Armstrong, here in Istanbul. And in this episode, episode number 150, we're going to hear from Soner Çarptay, director of the Turkish Research Program at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the author of A Sultan in Autumn, Erdogan Faces Turkey's Uncontrollable Forces, published by IB Taurus. It's his fourth book since 2013, examining the state of play of political dynamics around President, previously Prime Minister, Erdogan. And once again, a text of the e-book has actually been made publicly available, free open access. I've put up a link to where you can download that e-book at turkeybooktalk.com, where you can also find our entire archive of episodes going back six years now. Remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury, is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and eBooks. In fact, it's also valid for the book that we're talking about in this episode, but it's already free, so I don't know why you would buy it. Also, if you prefer reading over listening, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members also receive PDF transcripts of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3, €3 Euros or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our conversation with Soner Charptai. The title of the book obviously suggests that he sees the era of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan entering its final phase. So I started by asking him what's behind his reasoning for that.
1: Indeed, I have followed the political career of Turkish uh, Prime Minister, then President Erdogan for nearly two decades now. In fact, uh, Erdogan's career has overlapped with mine at the Washington Institute for Nearest Policy. The Institute hired me after my PhD at Yale in 2002, and little did I know that a few months later, Erdogan would become Turkey's Prime Minister, or his party rather would win elections, and the next year Erdogan would become Prime Minister, and then I would, uh, my job would be to follow his uh, career. I have uh, produced a quartet of books on Erdogan, and the last one, as you mentioned, uh, titled The Sultan in Autumn, suggests that Erdogan is beyond the point of his popularity in terms of his political career. Uh, It doesn't mean that Erdogan is going to be voted out tomorrow, but it basically says the following. Until uh, recently, Erdogan relied on a plurality and at times a slim majority of voters in Turkey to govern in the first decade of the century, to control in the first half of the second decade of this century, and to oppress in the last half of the second decade of the century the rest of Turkey's population. The uh, change, the inflection point right now is that Erdogan has to rely on a minority to control and oppress a majority. That, I think, is what is different. He's still liked. He has a base that adores him. But that base has shrunk significantly as a result of a variety of factors, the top of among which is the state of the economy. I think because Turkey has been a democratic society for so long and it has democratic memory and resilience, it becomes really difficult for Erdogan to sustain control over the population by relying on minority support. So the book looks at how Erdogan is likely going to thread the needle. I suggest, for example, that he's going to unleash, even in the context of recent Erdogan years, unprecedented amounts of ideological and political oppression of the opposition to maintain his rule. But the challenges are multiple, from a revived opposition, a unified opposition, uh, most more significantly, to demographic challenges, meaning that among younger voters, Erdogan simply does not have the same appeal as he does among the electorate in general. So the book really highlights uh, this turning point in his career, how Erdogan is likely to, to sustain stay in his control, but also Turkey's foreign policy environment and opposition tactics.
0: You say at one point in the book, quote, he will do whatever it takes to remain Turkey's president. He will do all he can to prevent his opposition from voting him out, even though numbers will work against him in, at the polls, which means increased oppression before, during and after the elections. Barring a surprise peaceful transfer of power, he will likely unleash significantly sharper waves of political and ideological repression to maintain control. He knows how to polarise the electorate to boost his base, he knows how to oppress his opposition to secure election victories, and he's likely to cling to power by hook or by crook, albeit without his long-accustomed aura of omnipotence. For those thinking Turkish politics looked unstable and Erdogan authoritarian recently, the ride will only get bumpier as the president faces stiffer challenges. So ultimately, your book's conclusion is pretty pessimistic because you're predicting there more oppression at home as Erdogan scrambles to secure himself in office.
1: Unfortunately, that's the case. And uh, Erdogan, uh, if you looked at him 10 years ago, and uh, in the quartet of books that I mentioned, uh, my first book on him was uh, regarding quite a positive story, the dramatic economic growth that Erdogan delivered for nearly 15 years. So if you looked at Erdogan's legacy 10 years ago, it was going to be quite different. It was going to be the leader who uh, delivered phenomenal growth, increased access to the pie, improved services, Uh, But nearly two decades into Erdogan rule, you know, I think absolute power corrupts absolutely. And at the end of the day, I'm a great believer in term limits. Had Erdogan exited politics at the end of his second or third term, he would have been remembered probably on par with Turgut Azal, Turkey's 20th century, late 20th century prime minister, who similarly delivers phenomenal growth as someone who took Turkey one level up uh, in terms of being a great country among nations. But uh, two decades into Erdogan rule, I think his brand right now is autocratic rule, oppression of the opposition, locking up of dissidents. Obviously, I think at this stage, Turkey looks like a country, I would say, with two compartments. The shrinking compartment is one in which Erdogan supporters sit, and that's a compartment in which people enjoy almost unfettered freedoms. Unfettered because that includes, for instance, incitement to violence, which is now a regular piece in pro-Erdogan media where opposition figures are targeted and they're often physically attacked and assaulted, a new phenomenon and a, bother, a bothersome phenomenon in Turkey. You also have the other compartment, which is now representing a majority and increasingly growing, in which even basic rights and liberties are denied, For instance, uh, it's impossible in these days uh, in Turkey for uh, someone who's not in the pro-Erdogan camp to demonstrate whatever the issue is. It could be on women's rights. It could be on uh, corruption. These people will be locked locked up right away and, and arrested. So yes, I think that we're entering an unfortunate era of increased political oppression. And I would also go one step ahead and say that never has Turkey been this uh, oppressive under a democratically elected government in its history since uh, 1950 uh, when it switched to having free and fair elections. So in hindsight, I think Erdogan's legacy is going to be written as the politician who transformed Turkey economically, but who unfortunately messed it up politically.
0: One of the key debates that's emerged in recent weeks is migration and that is one of the areas that the government and Erdogan himself are really struggling with. Popular discontent over this issue poses a very stiff challenge to Erdogan and it's really a source of discontent right across the political spectrum including among Erdogan supporters. Is potentially an incendiary issue, and particularly in Turkey, where the numbers are very high indeed, over three and a half million Syrians, and uh, most recently, of course, the rising attention on this stream of Afghan migrants crossing the border. So, how do you see that one developing in the coming months and years? And how do you see Erdogan's government negotiating that discontent? Uh-
1: I would say the refugee issue is Erdogan's greatest challenge among the, the many issues that he faces. Turks should be commended, applauded for extending a really warm welcome to a very large number of refugees. Turkey currently hosts just about 4 million refugees, majority of which are Syrians. Uh, that number represents a nearly 5% addition uh, on top of Turkey's population of 80 million people. And Turks uh, gave these refugees a very warm welcome, but that welcome now is wearing thin, primarily because the economy is not doing well. The Turkish economy grew uh, quite dramatically and uh, surprisingly uh, uh, compared to earlier decades under Erdogan. For 15 years, people enjoyed prosperity. And I think that's how Erdogan was able to expand his base from the traditional conservative political Islamist base that supported his movement. But in 2018, the economy entered into recession for the first time under Erdogan. That's the main reason why Erdogan lost elections for Islam will Ankara, other key cities in 2019. The economy has exited recession, but it was only showing signs of slow growth, and that is turning turned into anti-refugee sentiments. Uh, there are many reasons why people are now opposing the refugees publicly, a key reason being, I think, that uh, the bad state of the Turkish economy, unemployment is high, inflation is in double digits, and it could spiral out of control. And uh, in this environment, even Erdogan, the very astute Machiavellian politician, may not a- be able to shoulder or face off the challenges and the new political demographic and social trends created by a sudden increase in Turkey's already large refugee population. Afghanistan, I think, is a real threat in this regard, because if uh, following a complete Taliban takeover, uh, there's a large outflow of refugees. They will be migrating westwards into Iran. Iran will do to Turkey what Turkey did to Greece in 2015. It will pick up refugees from its border with Afghanistan and drop them along its border with Turkey. And if these refugees overwhelm Turkey's borders because the numbers are so large and humanitarian conditions are so terrible, I think that it could create uh, troubles for Erdogan, the likes of which he has never seen. In this regard, I think it's really important to highlight that until recently, there was a a gentleman's agreement in Turkey by mainstream political parties that they would not embrace refugee issues and make it part of their domestic political campaigns. That agreement has now expired uh, from the uh, leader of main opposition Republican People's Party, CHP, to local politicians. Many have embraced the refugee issue. The refugee shoot uh, poses a threat to Erdogan, not only from the perspective of Afghanistan, but also from the perspective of his ties with Vladimir Putin. I argue in uh, Sultan in Autumn that uh, Erdogan-Putin relationship changed dramatically in the aftermath of the coup attempt against Erdogan in 2016. At this time, while many of Turkey's Western allies set on their hands, some kind of hoping, unfortunately, that the coup would succeed, Vladimir Putin reached out to Erdogan right away. Putin realized this was a very traumatic affair and a nefarious plot in Turkey. And yet after the coup, the first leader to reach out to Erdogan was not President Barack Obama at the time or NATO Secretary General, but Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Putin's invitation to Erdogan meant that Erdogan was hosted in uh, St. Petersburg only two weeks after the coup. That started the process of an Erdogan-Putin rapprochement, not Turkish-Russian rapprochement. I think Turkey and Russia have many differences, but Erdogan and Putin, since the coup, have been getting along quite well. Now, despite that, I think Erdogan and Turkey is too exposed to Russia. The two countries, for example, uh, following the 2016 coup attempt and Erdogan's visit to Putin in St. Petersburg, entered into soft power-sharing agreements in Syria, Libya, and South Caucasus. But these are only tenuous deals. Enter Idlib, the last uh, rebel-held province in Syria, still controlled uh, by the opposition. Turkey has a significant presence there. Idlib has a civilian population uh, nearing three million people, we believe. And if for some reason, let's say, Turkish-Russian ties did not go as Putin wants them to be, Let's say Erdogan wants to restore ties with the United States, and the big issue there is uh, his purchase of Russian-made S-400 missile defense system. If Erdogan decided to return that system, I think it's so easy for Putin to undermine Erdogan by, let's say, authorizing an Assad regime attack against Idlib. Most of the civilians living in Idlib have been twice or thrice ethnically cleansed by Assad. It's inconceivable that they would want to fall under Assad rule you could easily see an addition, a large addition to Turkey's refugee population from Syria in this case. So I think both Syrian refugees and Afghan refugees pose now the greatest threat to Erdogan's ability to hold on to power domestically.
0: Despite all these challenges, there is still sizable support for Erdogan out there. Uh, A very significant mass of very devoted fans, basically. And there's also another group of interests that you don't mention in the book, but it seems to me very important to consider... And that is this mutually beneficial kind of cronyistic economic networks that have developed around the government and they basically rely on the government uh, to keep going. These are companies very often in construction, energy and tourism in particular. And these are fed on government contracts, tax breaks and other legal benefits in recent years. And these companies... These interests also completely shape Turkey's media agenda, which uh, the vast majority of the country is still subjected to, which gives the government uh, immense control in that sense. So this seems to me another very crucial group that's uh, very much invested in uh, Erdogan staying in power, pretty much regardless of the consequences. What's your reading on, on the motivations of those economic groups that surround the government at the moment going forward?
1: Absolutely. So Erdogan has a base of adoring uh, supporters, uh, includes many conservatives who like his nativist populist message. And Erdogan has used that messaging to target groups that are unlikely to vote for him. He's gone after demographics that are not among his likely voters, including secularists, liberals, leftists, social democrats, socialists, Alevis. Erdogan has also gone after Kurdish nationalists. When you add these groups up, you get nearly half of Turkey. And I think that's a deep crisis that Erdogan faces, that he's kind of reached a saturation point in terms of popular support to him. But the economy turning down has shrunk his base. I think that the base loves him, yes, for his conservative, nativist populist messaging, but also because he has delivered quite strong economic growth and lifted so many people out of poverty. That's why I think the economy entering recession in 2018, and then only showing slow signs of growth, Polls are showing Erdogan perhaps at the lowest level of public support, down to about a third of the electorate uh, since his party first won elections in 2003. So Erdogan sorely needs to recover economic growth. I think that is the reason behind his charm offensive towards President Biden. Uh, there's a relationship between the state of Turkish economy and U.S.-Turkish ties in the sense that if the Turkish economy is in brittle shape and there's a perception that the U.S.-Turkish ties are in free fall, Turkish economy tanks. Erdogan now wants to reverse this narrative. He wants to establish an narrative of good ties with Biden, which is the reason why Erdogan was quiet when Biden delayed calling him for over three months after Biden came into office. Erdogan was also similarly quiet when Biden called Erdogan more than three months after coming to office, not to say, hello, how are you? Can we get together? But to say, oh, I'm going to recognize the Armenian genocide. Erdogan is the mercurial leader. He doesn't miss an opportunity to snap back at the United States or bash the West or United States, Europe and U.S. In this case, he was quiet. He so desperately needs to have a good narrative of ties with the U.S. for the markets to feel confident to invest in Turkey again, for growth to return, and for Erdogan to build his base. I think this is even behind his Afghanistan offensive. Erdogan uh, wanted to be on Biden's good side. He realized how important it is for Biden to leave Afghanistan, but have Kabul airport run safely so that he provided a lifeline for U.S. and other coalition embassies. That desire now seems to have been upended by the Taliban. I think the Taliban played a smart game to the outside world. So perhaps in Afghanistan, it didn't work, but I think Erdogan is gonna look for other areas where he can cultivate cooperation with Biden because he so desperately needs to create an era of good ties with the US. The other part of your question regarding the, the construction elites, These are large companies that have benefited tremendously from Erdogan's contracts. Uh, They have grown tremendously. A downside of it is the tremendous damage to Turkey's urban and architectural heritage. I've recently visited Istanbul. Every time I go there, it becomes harder and harder for me to recognize the city I grew up in because of massive towers and uh, mega construction projects that are being raised over the city's historic neighborhoods. Most of these projects benefit the large companies that support Erdogan. Perhaps that was also part of the Afghanistan drive. If one part of it was Erdogan's desire to get along with Biden, the other part of it was to use Afghanistan as an area of construction projects and contracts that could be doled out to Erdogan supporters and that could help sustain their support for Erdogan.
0: Now, one group of interests that did fall afoul of the government years ago is the Gülen Movement. And uh, chapter five in the book looks into this network. And I particularly enjoyed this chapter because it punctured some of the myths around the Gülen network. Uh, basically, this was a group, uh, a kind of religious group, centred around the uh, devotion to this leader, Fetullah Gülen, uh, with deep roots going back decades in Turkey. But um, it struck up an alliance with the AKP under Erdogan in its early years, shared interests between them and then broke out basically years ago into a power struggle and they pretty resoundingly lost that power struggle with Erdogan and they've been basically criminalised, they're now a terrorist group or officially designated a terrorist group, nevertheless they're still very influential diplomatically it seems in the US and the narrative uh, that they put forward on events in Turkey is still pretty influential it seems among certain elites. So. Uh, it's quite, I don't want to say it's a rare thing in, in English language commentary on Turkey today to see this uh, critique of the Gulen network, but um, it's kind of overlooked sometimes, I think, uh, in a lot of people's analysis, but uh, your book does address it. So could you elaborate on that, you know, how the has played this key role in paving the way to the pretty grim situation that we see today?
1: Indeed. Uh, I always, uh, I love writing and writing about and studying Turkey. And one of the reasons I love studying Turkey is because I believe if, countries could be vegetables, Turkey will be the analytical onion, meaning it defies a country that defies Manichean binarisms and broad generalizations. And the Erdogan-Gulen relationship is a case in point. There's not a single lecture I've done in the last few years where someone in the audience did not get up and say, hey, Soner, what do you think about that poor guy who lives in Pennsylvania in the US and who has been opposing Erdogan, referring to Gulen himself? And I tell my audience, there's only one part of that question that's factually true, that Gulen lives in Pennsylvania. He's not a poor guy. He runs a pretty powerful movement, uh, which until recently had quite a few followers in Turkey, including in the police, media, and judiciary. And Gulen has not always opposed Erdogan. In fact, he was an Erdogan ally for over 10 years. The first decade of uh, the, the prosperous years where Erdogan delivered growth and built a base that uh, adores him is also a decade when Erdogan built what I call a republic of fear, hidden behind the facade of economic growth and prosperity. In what is collectively dubbed as the Ergenekon case, Together with help from Gulen-aligned prosecutors, cops, and journalists, Erdogan built a case alleging that there was a coup plot against him titled er- Ergenekon. The prosecutors could never, Gulen-aligned prosecutors, that is, could never produce a convincing account of the set coup, but the allegations were used to lock up at one point. A quarter of the active-duty generals and admirals in the Turkish military, as well as many dissidents who opposed Erdogan, journalists, uh, scholars, university presidents, especially those that wanted to keep open secular, uh, open open society available. And the idea of opposing Erdogan through ideas was criminalized in this era with significant help from Gulen. And I would also add that democracy in this century in Turkey came under attack for the first time, not during the coup attempt of 2016, but during the Ergenekon case. Gulen is completely complicit in the destruction of checks and balances in Turkey. He supported Erdogan in 2010 in a referendum that gave Erdogan the right to appoint a majority of high judges, sorry, judges to the high courts without a confirmation process. And Gülen-aligned journalists were uh, applauding Erdogan when Erdogan was locking up dissidents and and journalists. I think that usually hidden behind the facade of Erdogan the autocrat, the story of Gülen opposing Erdogan does not necessarily make Gülen a good guy or his movement, uh, the good people in uh, Turkish politics. In fact, I would say Notwithstanding the very deep differences over almost any issue in Turkey because Turkey is so polarized, Gülen issue is perhaps one where a majority, if not an overwhelming majority of Turkish citizens seems to be united. The half until recently, now less than half of Turkey, that loves Erdogan, hates Gülen because as they see it, Gülen tried to kill Erdogan during this 2016 coup attempt. The other half, now more than half of Turkey, that hates Erdogan, also hates Gülen because Gülen empowered Erdogan.
0: Now, turning back to foreign relations, uh, obviously, you spent most of your time in Washington. So watching Erdogan's relationship with Biden closely, things seem to have got off to quite a pragmatic start, actually, which surprised a few people. Have you been surprised by that? And how do you think things will develop
1: on that front? Not so much. So I was watching as it became certain that Biden was going to win the elections, attending uh, meetings here in Washington and then online uh, during the pandemic, how uh, Erdogan officers would offer platitudes at the United States and would criticize Putin and Russia quite publicly, signaling that Ankara was interested in pivoting towards the United States. I think that has a lot to do with Erdogan's own endgame. Erdogan's uh, economy is his Achilles heel. Erdogan delivered phenomenal growth for about 15 years, but because the economy went into recession under him for the first time in 2018, he lost elections for Istanbul, Ankara, other big cities. Uh, another challenge for him is that the opposition is now united. That's another uh, outcome of the switch to the presidential system in 2018. Until the switch to that system, Erdogan benefited from the fact that his party ran in a parliamentary multi-party race, and his party, AKP, could win elections without winning popular majority. But the switch to the presidential elections, which was driven at least in part by Erdogan's uh, desire to avoid uh, his own term limits, uh, but the the switch created a presidential system which requires a two-way race, and that forced the opposition to unite. Until 2018, I think Erdogan benefited from a disparate opposition in which various groups hated each other more than they opposed Erdogan, so he could always win these races. Opposition had Turkish and Kurdish nationalists, political Islamists and secularists all competing against each other. But the switch to presidential race requires a two-way runoff competition and it forced the opposition to come together. Together with the, the, the bad state of the economy, the unified nature of the opposition is the main reason why Erdogan's party lost elections for Istanbul or other big cities in, in 2019. But the real fix goes through recovering economic growth. I think that if Erdogan can recover significant growth, there's a chance his party might win elections or or his alliance, rather, supported by other factions, might come close to winning elections and enter ties with the United States. Yes, uh, I don't think Erdogan is a fan of U.S. or its policies or its values, but I think Erdogan realizes that notwithstanding his efforts to reshape Turkey's identity as Middle Eastern or Muslim, there's a fact. Number one, Turkey's economy is completely integrated with that of the European Union because of customs union that stretches back to 1995, which means all industrial goods move freely between Turkey and the EU. Turkey is actually part of the EU supply chain. Uh, the largest investors in Turkey are still European. Number two, as a resource poor country, Turkey needs global financial inflows to grow, enter ties with US and Biden. Erdogan so desperately needs to charm Biden in order to bring uh, growth back. But it's not going to be easy for him. He also needs to get along well with Putin at the same time, as I discussed earlier. The key issue now in U.S.-Turkish relationship from the American side is Turkey's purchase of Russian-made S-400 missile defense system for which Turkey has been sanctioned in, in, in the U.S. Congress and faces potential sanctions further. Putin has, in a way, put Turkey and Erdogan in a bind at this moment, where it's really difficult for Erdogan to walk away. So we just said Erdogan wants to establish good ties with Biden and form a narrative of good ties with the United States, a sine qua non. that is Erdogan returning the S-400s to Russia because the congressional sanctions package says that Turkey will be sanctioned so long as the system remains on Turkish territory. Hypothetically speaking, if Erdogan were to return the system to Russia, I think he faces a barrage of Russian sanctions. Erdogan thrives on his global strongman image domestically, If Putin was a green light, an attack on Turkish forces by Russian troops or proxies in Syria, South Caucasus or Libya, that'd be very damaging to Erdogan's image. Putin can do even implement even easier steps, such as uh, tourism sanctions. Russians were number one among arrivals to Turkey before the pandemic. If Putin were to ban Russian tourists going to Turkey, that could easily shave off a few percent points from Turkey's potential growth. Similarly, trade sanctions could undermine Turkey's growth. So while Erdogan is trying to make up with Biden and court European investment, he also has to make sure to not piss off Vladimir Putin. And that's a really tall order that he has to kind of leverage U.S., Europe, Russia and even China against each other in order to bring growth back, rebuild his base, and win elections. That's a tall order, even for Recep Tayyip Erdogan.
0: You mentioned Syria there. Obviously, Turkey's in control of a very significant population in northern Syria across the border, and things have gone a bit quieter, or rather they're not much in the focus as they previously were. But uh, obviously, Syria is absolutely at the center of uh, turkey russia relations and the kind of uh, wrangling that's been going on for years between them. And you argue in the book that, uh, quote, Turkey will eventually face a renewed Assad-PKK alliance, probably with Russia's tacit blessing. The relationship between the Assad regime and the PKK is nearly as old as the regime itself. Damascus has hosted the PKK for decades and has allowed it to use Syrian territory as a base from which to carry out attacks into Turkey. Even today, the YPG and regime forces cooperatively oppose Turkish and Turkish-supported forces in several areas in Syria. Whatever he promises Erdogan, Putin is unlikely to insist that Assad completely suppresses the PKK in Syria. Ultimately, Russia's historic relationship with the PKK will serve as a key lever should the Turkish leader, Erdogan, deviate from Moscow in international affairs. That's quite a bold prediction to backing up what you previously just said. I wonder if you could just flesh that out a bit. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So the, the relationship between the Assad regime and the PKK is as old as the Assad regime itself. The PKK was established in certain occupied Lebanese Bakah Valley in the 1970s with the blessing of the Assad regime. Uh, the PKK was backed at the time as a Marxist-Leninist organization by the Soviet Union. So it has a relationship with the Russian security elites that is as old as the Cold War itself. Now, clearly, the PKK is a tactical partner to the United States in fighting ISIS, uh, but the group's uh, Marxist-Leninist pedigree, though uh, the group now brushes it off, I think is uh, the ideological uh, formation of the group's leadership that is present at the Kandil Mountain, inside mountainous Iraqi Kurdistan. And I always thought that in the non-binary environment of the Syrian civil war, that the YPG, which is a Syrian offshoot of the PKK, and the Assad regime are more co-belligerents than they were enemies in many areas up to this day. Assad regime pays the salaries of YPG officials. Uh, You can fly from commercially technically controlled by by YPG on certain airline flights, uh, regular flights, scheduled flights to Damascus. So clearly this is more of a symbiotic relationship than a hostile relationship. I think the same applies to the Russian YPG-PKK relationship. In the long term, I think uh, the PKK unfortunately remains a tool uh, or an instrument uh, with which both the Assad regime and Russia could undermine Turkey's stability if let's say, Erdogan-Putin relations break down at some point. So the more Erdogan has entered into these bargains with Putin since 2016 in Syria, Libya, and South Caucasus, I think the more he has exposed Turkey to Russia's vicissitudes, which is why I think it's really a difficult, maybe a tall order for Biden to have a complete reset with Erdogan. At this moment, the only way the U.S.-Turkish relationship can be reset is if Turkey were to return the S-400 system to Russia, that would eliminate congressional sanctions and bring back the defense relationship the U.S.-Turkish relationship is primarily a defense-based relationship. It's not driven by massive amounts of trade. It's not driven by diasporas, historic ties, or affinities. It's mainly a defense-based relationship that dates back to the Cold War. In this relationship, mega-projects have kept the relationship, have sustained the relationship. One of these was the F-16 projects, to which a former Turkish prime minister exceeded Turkey in the 1980s. That carried or formed the bedrock of U.S.-Turkish ties for the next three to four decades. The F-35 project, that is the Pentagon's next fighter uh, jet project, was supposed to serve the same function for the next three to four decades. But because of Turkey's purchase of S-400s, Turkey has been uh, suspended from this project. And for Turkey to come back to it, it would have to uh, return the (laughs) S-400s to Russia. But if Turkey were to do that, there's so many levers with which Putin can undermine Erdogan, starting with triggering refugee flows from Idlib to uh, trade and tourism sanctions to striking at uh, Turkish other auxiliaries. The only way I think that you kind of we can walk out of this, if Biden were to tell Erdogan that the U.S. will support Turkey uh, militarily, 100 percent against Russia in Syria, South Caucasus and Libya. And I think given Biden's reticence, taking Afghanistan as a lesson to be involved in foreign wars, that's almost impossible. On top of it, Biden would also have to tell Erdogan that he wouldn't mind if Erdogan were to rig elections, further oppress his opposition, So my conclusion is that in the coming uh, weeks and months, Erdogan will play with Biden, but will have to pick Putin.
0: What course do you see the Kurdish issue taking in the coming years, particularly ahead of the next election? Because of course, we've seen years of repression of the HDP. But there's been a bit of speculation about Erdogan trying to reach out to Kurdish voters in recent weeks and months, or at least a traditionalist conservative section within uh, the Kurdish constituency. So what do you make of that? And how do you see that one developing?
1: I would say there have been two key developments regarding Kurdish politics in Turkey. One is the rise of uh, Demirtas as the the head of People's uh, uh, Democracy Party, HDP. Until that moment, pro-Kurdish or Kurdish nationalist parties in Turkey typically received six to seven percent of the vote, failing Turkey's relatively high 10 percent national threshold. That's the uh, threshold, uh, meaning uh, parties had to gain 10 percent of the vote nationally in order to be represented in the country's parliament and Kurdish parties always fell that threshold. But Demirtas reformed or transformed the HDP. Uh, he, uh, he turned it from a strictly pro-Kurdish one into a pro-Kurdish liberal alliance, uh, such as by running a gender-balanced uh, list in elections, as well as uh, fielding uh, candidates from Turkey's uh, minorities on his list. That helped expand the uh, HDP's uh, base from just over 6% to over 13%. Demirtas more than doubled the votes for HDP, which is why I think he's in jail today. Erdogan sees him as a big threat. If Demirtas were on top of HDP, it was conceivable that the party would continue to grow further, perhaps crossing even a 20% uh, mark. So that's one important development, kind of the expansion of the HDP's base. And now opinion polls today regularly show HDP at or crossing 10%. So the party has cut through that threshold. The second important development regarding Kurdish politics is the consolidation of the opposition alliance uh, following the switch to presidential system uh, by Erdogan. A move that was supposed to make Erdogan more powerful, but uh, a move that I argue in the Sultan in Autumn that has made him less powerful for a number of reasons, among which by convincing his opposition to coalesce. Opposition parties until the switch to presidential system hated each other so much that uh, they ran separate lists, of course. But the pre- switch to presidential system, because it requires a two-way race, taught them a lesson. They have to unify or they will perish. So they decided to unify. They held their noses over their differences in the presidential elections of 2018, filled with a joint candidate. It didn't quite work, but it worked in Istanbul and Ankara elections. Since then, opposition has stayed put I think Erdogan's, one of his tactical uh, moves going forward is going to be try to undermine opposition unity. And to this end, he's going to keep demonizing HDP, uh, not necessarily to shut it down, but to force another uh, key player in the opposition bloc to jettison itself out of the alliance. That other player is Meral Akşener's e-party. Akşener comes from a Turkish nationalist pedigree. By demonizing uh, and stigmatizing HDP as a group of quote-unquote terrorists, Erdogan wants to make it difficult for Akshaner to stay in the opposition bloc. I think Erdogan knows that Akshaner will not join him because her base uh, despises Erdogan, and that's one of the main reasons why when she split from the Turkish nationalist MHP, uh, the base followed her. And since then, we have seen E-Party grow and MHP shrink. So it's unlikely that Aksener will join Erdogan. But I think Erdogan's game is to create a three-way race. He wants Aksener to jettison herself out of the opposition bloc. So she creates a third poll. Here's the basic fact for the next Turkish elections. Erdogan loses in free and fair elections in a two-way race, but he wins in a three-way race. And I think his goal, therefore, is going to be demonize the HDP to force E to abandon the opposition bloc. I do think that uh, notwithstanding these games, uh, the Kurdish issue in Turkey is kind of gone through a transformation, perhaps as a result of the HDP's own transformation. Support for a political solution to the Kurdish issue and support for cultural rights to the Kurds, I think, is at an all-time high. So it will be interesting to see if Erdogan decides to take advantage of that and do an, another Kurdish opening. I don't think, though, that, uh, that with all that has happened in the last 10 years, jailing of HDP leaders and demonization of the party and its voters, that HDP cadres will so easily fold under Erdogan. But I would not rule that out. Erdogan is a political survivor. If he decides that support given to him by his ally Bahçeli's MHP is far outweighed potential support to be given to him by HDP, he might drop Bahçeli and switch over to HDP. And that would be opening an entire new game in Turkish politics.
0: Now, the book is about Erdogan in autumn, so obviously hinting that we're reaching this final stage of the Erdogan era, however long that lasts. Uh, And of course, that naturally means that eyes are starting to turn to the post-Erdogan era. So who do you see as best place to take the reins after Erdogan? There's been a lot of buzz around Suleiman Soylu, obviously, who's gathered quite a sizable constituency of nationalist followers, probably a more independent base of support than anybody in the AKP at the moment, somewhat independent even of Erdogan. So is he the most likely inheritor of the mantle? Uh, What should we expect on that front?
1: Uh, I would say Soylu's statue standing in Turkey has been shaken by a number of uh, scandals. Erdogan's son-in-law, earlier seen as a contender to power Erdogan, who went into a sort of an occultation or hiding after the economy under his supervision collapsed, could always stage a comeback. But I think what is really more important is to look at opposition figures who could be a challenge for Erdogan in the next elections. And in this regard, I would highlight uh, three politicians, Istanbul, Mary, Mamoru, Uh, Ankara mayor Yavaş and E-Party leader Akshanair. Istanbul is Turkey's biggest city. It is uh, the city where Erdogan was a mayor. And that's a position that helped Erdogan become a nationally and then internationally recognized figure. Because Erdogan ran Istanbul well, cleaned it up, delivered good services. If uh, Istanbul mayor Imamoğlu today can do the same, deliver good services and run the city effectively, then he'll be seen in the eyes of Turkey's voters as the, the leader who can uh, become the chief executive as this uh, kind of uh, helped Erdogan gain that stature after he ran Istanbul well. Now, in Turkey, there's a fact local governments rely on central government for two-thirds of their budgets, and I think Erdogan has been uh, using that to cut funding going to Imam and in Istanbul and hoping that that will undermine uh, Imam ability to deliver services. Imam has sort of been able to bypass some of the by uh, being securing credit from European banks. I'd say Istanbul's biggest problem right now is traffic. If the city has a metro system. It has to be expanded. If Imamolu can build and open up two or three more metro lines ahead of the next elections, I think that will have a clear impact on his ability to deliver services, and he will become uh, quite a successful challenger. Ankara Mayor Yavash, I think, is also right up there. Also a, a, a good uh, mayor, deliver, delivering good services. And finally, uh, uh, Akshaner. She's important because Turkey is basically a right-wing country. Became a multi-party democracy in 1950, excluding years spent under military rule, totaling four following coups. That means Turkey has had democratically elected governments for the last 67 years. Guess of those sixty-seven years, how many were spent under left-wing-led governments? Not even years—seventeen months. In other words, there has got to be a right-wing uh, element, component to a post-Erdogan government. Akşener brings that to the opposition. She brings uh, right-wing voters and legitimacy, and. Uh, Notwithstanding the bans uh, uh, Erdogan has imposed on media in terms of the media not providing access to opposition politicians, especially her party, auctioneers, EU party has been growing steadily in the polls, started around six, seven percent. I think the latest polls show her party to have broken nearly 14, 15 percent mark. So I would say she's also an important figure to follow. And to answer the first part of your question, is this the autumn of Erdogan's career? It is. For one very simple reason, Erdogan came to power having embraced a nativist populist and anti-elitist messaging, which meant that he blamed Turkey's problems on its past Kemalist elites. And that worked in 2003, 2008, even 2010. Erdogan could blame corruption, Kurdish issue, economic mismanagement on former elites. But Erdogan has been in charge of Turkey for now, nearly 20 years. That means about 20 million people have been born under him. That also means roughly about 15 million or so people have come of political age under Erdogan. And for that group, Erdogan's anti-elitist message simply does not sell. It actually falls flat on their ears. Uh, these are Turkey's 21st century citizens, and they cannot understand how Turkey's 20th century elites can be responsible for its current problems. They see only Erdogan as the owner of the country's current problems. That's why I think he's at in the fall or autumn of his career. He's come to this point where he represents the establishment and there's a huge demographic imbalance against him. The younger the voters are, the less likely they are to support Erdogan categorically and the less, li- more likely they are to oppose his policies because Erdogan has become what he has criticized. He has become the all-powerful state that denies citizens' rights and liberties. And for Turkey's uh, younger citizens, Gen Y, Gen X voters, that's completely unacceptable.
0: Just to bring things to a conclusion, uh, this is the second book of yours with the term Sultan in the title. In 2017, you published a book called The New Sultan. Correct. Uh, I always just wonder if that's not a bit uh, provocative. You know, I doubt many people in uh, in Ankara will be best pleased. Um, Have you experienced much uh, angry pushback on that front?
1: As a writer, I'm sure you know that uh, you know writers can uh, negotiate with editors every word, every comma in their pieces, but hardly the title. So the titles are not my choices. Uh, in both cases, it was my editors who came to me and told me this is what they thought was right. I did, in fact, push back on New Sultan. I said, that's Orientalist. Uh, first of all, we should call Erdogan a king if we're going to call him anything. That has uh, implies a, a form of monarchy. I also, at the time, of course, when I was drafting the book in 2015, really did not think that Erdogan uh, quite, quite qualified as sort of a quasi-sultan, but that was in 2015. In 2016, following the failed coup attempt, Erdogan used the uh, post-coup set of emergency powers given to him, not just to crack down on suspected coup plotters, but the broader opposition. And I would say he has indeed emerged as the quasi-sultan of Turkey's second republic, which he's constantly trying to shape in his own image. So far, I would say that's not going uh, so well. Erdogan is increasingly have a harder time implementing his revolution. So I would say that he's uh, going to be remembered as the quasi-sultan of a country that Erdogan tried to refashion in his own image, uh, but did not quite succeed.
0: That was Soner Time. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 150. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by I.B. Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview. Transcripts of the entire archive of interviews access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, or via Twitter, or via our Facebook page, or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to Armstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.